Well, good morning. No, really, it is a good morning. Good morning. <laughs> you know, sometimes I meet with the Lord and <clears throat> it just ain't a lot of energy left over <laughs> afterwards. We've got a few folks here visiting with us today that uh, just have a special place in our hearts Walt and Kim Alexander. Walt is a pastor from the sister church in Knoxville, Tennessee. They have their newborn Rev with them. Can you guys stand up and let us tell you hello? Just, just you, Walt. They've abandoned you, bro. Great to have you. And we have a family from the Gaithersburg Church here visiting Bart. I got to meet. I did not get to meet his wife, but I see them both there. Can you guys stand up just so we can greet you and... Thank you guys for being here. Uh, well, this morning I want to get into the word in 1 Peter. That's where we'll be again this morning, 1 Peter chapter 2. If you're kind of new to a Sunday morning setting with us, you're kind of joining the program already in progress. We are studying through this letter that the Apostle Peter wrote in the mid-60s, in the first century, and, you know, depending on how you have gotten around the Bible in your life, you might be curious to, to think, okay, what's, what's an old letter like that got to do with us today and all the issues that we face? Well, let me tell you what, what the letter's not about. You know, it's, it's not about how to get better gas mileage out of your ox or, you know, how to wield ancient hand tools. Uh, I think sometimes people come to the Bible and they're trying to figure out well, how can the Bible be relevant. Well, it's helpful that it's not about that stuff. As a matter of fact, you can read almost the whole Bible and not, well, you definitely won't find gas mileage for your ox in the Bible, but you won't find a lot of stuff like that there. What you do find is God speaking to people who have come into relationship with him and now God is giving them insight on how to live life here on planet earth. And that transfers, doesn't it? You don't have to be in the first century for that to be relevant. You could be right where we are today, and that's still relevant. How do you and I do life? How do we prioritize things? What are the factors about life that we didn't know that God informs us about? That will make all the difference in the world. Well, we've kind of slowed up a little bit as we've gotten into these passages here. We're really kind of camping out in Chapter uh, 2, verse 9 and 10, and, and some thoughts that are immediately right around that. As I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, this is like driving through a school zone. We're going to slow up a little bit for this because I think it's something God wants to communicate uniquely for us as a church at this hour of our lives together uh, in the year 2011. And so I'm praying and we're trusting that all of us have ears to hear what God wants to say to us individually as we're part of this church. Uh, all right, so you're going to get a title within a title today, right? We're doing First Peter, this little bitty breakout on these two verses we call There's No Place Like Home. And that reference is not a reference to your home address. It's a reference to the body of Christ that we're a part of. It's home. And I, I want to do some work today to, to get it to feel like home for us. But I want us to see something as well today, so I, I had to give a second title to today's message. It's called Reaching the World from the Foyer and Your Family Room. So let's look here at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. But let me back up into verse 4 where we get some running speed here. As you 
come to him. Peter's now turning his attention to his audience and describing them coming to Christ. He is the living stone rejected by men. Verse 5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Let's pay attention to the language here. To be a holy priesthood. And he's going to move on. He's going to use another little language in verse 6 that he's going to grab again. So he's about to grab this holy priesthood dynamic. And then he's going to use the word to describe Christ as one who is chosen and precious. And then he's going to move into this saying about us again in verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Depending on your translation, that might say a peculiar people. It's a, it's a special sort of a people dynamic that we have with God. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people. That doesn't mean you weren't human. You weren't on the planet. You just weren't in this category grouped into a special category of people who belong to God and to each other. Once you were not that, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And, and let that hang over everything we're going to say today. I'm not going to unpack the mercy of God in this passage today. But if there's anything special about us, we are special by the mercy of God. You don't ever want to fall into the category of how you present yourself to the rest of humanity or how you feel about yourself, that you're special because of something about you. What makes us special before God is that we have become the special objects of his mercy. Now, why he did that remains in the category of a mystery. Lord, why, why am I the object of your mercy in some amazing way? I can't explain it. And this passage would unpack a little bit of that, but I, I want to emphasize a couple things. Now, here's why I'm slowing up here. In this passage and how the, the letter to the, uh, to the folks that Peter's writing to un, unpacks here is there is a family dimension, if you will, and there's a functional dimension that gets tucked into these verses that the rest of the letter is going to unpack. There is this call to be a people as family members in the household of God and then as functional members in the kingdom of God. Right? So everybody in this room, if you belong to Christ, you're called to belong to a family. So there's a family dimension about your relationship here. And there's a functional dimension to your role here. It's true of everyone here. Listen to this thought from Howard Marshall. He says that term house that's being used here by Peter can be understood in two ways. First, a house can be a building in which a family or household lives. It emphasizes the corporate life of Christians under God as their father with duties to him and to one another. Second, a house can be a temple and that it is a place where a God dwells. Because the temple was the place of God's presence, it was the appropriate place for him to communicate with his people and to receive their gifts, sacrifices, and prayers. So when God uses this language here of a house, he brings us into the familial dynamics of our relationship to him and each other and the functional dynamics of our relationship to him and to each other. 
why is this particularly helpful for us as a church? You know, one of the things that we've done in the last several months, beginning in the fall, um, in being consulted by the extended leadership team and just trying to do the best we can to assess where is the church. What leaders don't want to do is, is just get go hung and run off and leave everyone. Right? You know, it's like, oh, we got this great vision and run off and leave everybody. So you want to know where, where is the church? How fast could we move right now? Well, when we assessed that, one of the things that we observed was within what makes the church the church, maybe 900, 1,000 people will be in and out of here on a regular basis. Our estimate, and there's no, there's no great science here. We just did the best we could to, to be observant. That there's about 300 to 400 people that are with us but have a very diminished understanding and dynamic of being family and of being functional. Now that describes a chunk of people in the room right now, and I hope many more who will listen by CD. That's a significant number. And God has intentions when he brings us into his family that we would genuinely experience something in the church that feels like home. It feels like family. It's got real relationships in it. And it feels like function because you're going to get a string of titles. You're not just a people uniquely for God who is our father. You're also a chosen generation and a royal priesthood and a holy nation. And so there's functionality for every one of us. So this is a message that needs to travel to an individual's life. And, and you need to be assessing, how do I feel family-wise? Does this feel like home to me? You know, when I think of home and what my life is oriented around, or is it my address and my natural family and where I'm from and my hometown, that's home for me. Or, or is the body of Christ feeling like home? You have those kinds of relationships in it. And has your life found its way into functioning in that home? Well, that's where we want to go with this passage today. Peter, in his, I think it would be accurate to say, everything post-Matthew chapter 28 could be a bit of a commentary on the Great Commission. Right? I mean, Jesus gives the Great Commission to the church. He says, go into all the world. And we'll read that passage in just a moment. And then the rest of the New Testament unpacks their going and brings comment to how they're doing that. So if you, if you could kind of say everything after Matthew 28 is a commentary giving some insight as to what does the Great Commission look like. Well, let's learn something from Peter's comments about the Great Commission. Remember the Great Commission, Matthew 28, verse 18? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, now these are important words because they, they speak into the mission of each of our lives. So when you take the ingredients of the Great Commission, you have going into the world. So without question, the church is called to make penetration into its culture, to press into the lives of those around us who don't yet know and understand the gospel. So we go, we make disciples, right? A disciple is a learner, a follower, one that obeys and submits to the lordship of Christ. That's a disciple. So we're going to go to do that. When someone becomes a disciple, because it's a transition moment, we baptize them, recognizing conversion. So we're seeking to introduce people to conversion in that dynamic. 
And then we're to teach them all that God has commanded under the promise that God is with us. His presence dwells with us. Right Now, you hear a lot of that in the passage in Peter. Right? We're a house. God's presence is there. We're a royal priesthood. We'll unpack some of that next week. But you might think Peter's comments here are a little bit upside down when it comes to the Great Commission. Because when we, when we hear the Great Commission... We need to hear all of it, so please do not hear me saying what I am not saying right now. Okay. I am not attempting to stomp on one part of the Great Commission in order to explain the other. Okay. I am going to cheer on both sides. I'm just going to make this point. I think one side gets more cheering than the other. And the side that gets the most cheering is the go part. It's the first word. It screams out at us. Go. All right, Peter, tell us. Tell us how to go. And so we open the Bible and, and we want to start finding the go parts, the strategies to reach the world and the apologetics to defend the gospel when we go to do that. And quite honestly, you don't find a lot. I mean, you read the New Testament, start letting your catalog of thoughts flood you in those, in those two places. Right? Peter's about to turn the corner in verse 12. He's going to say, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So certainly Peter's concerned about what witness we're going to give to the world. So that's, that's strategy there. But do you notice something? It's strategy about a house that's living a certain way. That's got a certain style about it. It's got a certain aroma to it. So it's looking inward and it's looking outward. Right? Do you see that in, even in that statement? Right, we're going to hear this a little bit later as we get into farther into chapter 3, verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yeah, do it with gentleness and respect. You know, that's, that's as close as the Bible comes to an apologetic statement. Be ready to give a defense. Now, some of us need to be aware of this. Is anybody going to ask you for a defense for your hope? Well, only if they see you having hope. Do you know how many of us are walking through life and we're just as weighed down and discouraged and beat up and as anybody is? We're just waiting for the next set of natural circumstances to change so that we can feel better about our lives. Do you understand the world lives exactly that way? They don't need your explanation on how to do that. They do that every day. They wait for their bank account and their tax report. They wait for a health report. They wait for a relational dynamic to change. And once it changes, they're going to have hope, and they'll join you in having hope if that's how you're living that out. What the body of Christ is called to do is something that's upside down. Have hope when it looks like you've got no reason to have hope. Have hope in a way that's confusing to people. Have people to get around you and make them scratch their heads and wonder, why are you okay right now? You should, you should really be weirded out by what's going on in your life. Okay, now you're ready to offer a defense for the hope that's in you. That God has done something that transcends the temporary dynamics of our lives. And, and listen, 
We're, we're, we're supposed to be defending the visible hope in our lives. You know, that's, I think that's part of defending what we believe, defending how we came to that belief. But sometimes we're miserable people who have great apologetics. Do you understand how that doesn't really go together? <laughs> no one cares about your apologetics if you're miserable. It's only when you've got hope and you're off the charts that people want to go, why is this working for you, man? That makes no sense at all. Right, now listen, if that is the opportunity that you have, be ready to explain why it is that you are in that position of having such hope. Um, unless you got saved yesterday, don't, don't have as your default setting, you know what, I can't explain it, but I tell you what, I'll take you to church with me. And they'll explain it. Oh, that's okay. If you just got saved yesterday, that's cool. But if you've been saved for a week, you need to be able to explain some things. <laughs> Okay, uh, don't depend on others just having to do that for you. But there is some dynamic of penetrating into the world, the go dynamic, but I wrote this out in your outline. If we're honest, Peter doesn't spend nearly as much time telling us how to interact with the world as much as he spends time telling us how to interact with each other and how to be the people God's called us to be. Now, if you haven't thought that through, you just start reading the New Testament. You tell me what Paul talks about to the Galatians and what Paul talks about to the Romans and what Paul talks about to the, first, to the Corinthians, right? You go back and you look, and he's talking to the people of God about how to be the people of God. And along the way, he'll mention some things apologetically or evangelistically. Look at this thought from Henry Blackaby in his book, A God-Centered Church. <clears throat> he says, over the last few decades, the focus has shifted away from God's people to evangelism and the lost. However, significant evangelism is a byproduct of what God does with his people. If we bypass the people of God, we have shut down evangelism. But when we help the people of God know who they are in Christ and what God purposed for their lives through salvation, the world will be turned upside down. When we examine how the early apostles implemented the Great Commission, we may be surprised. The apostles were, were not focused on evangelizing the lost. Now, I I'm going to have to say, I think he overstates that a little. I mean, I appreciate what he's saying here, but I have to say, nah, I think you're killing us with a point. But I agree with most of what he's saying here. Rather, they turned their attention to teach the people of God to obey all that Christ commanded. The apostles' priority was to devote their efforts toward prayer and to the preaching ministry. As a result of their decision to walk with God and invest in God's people, the preaching about God flourished and the number of the disciples in Jerusalem multiplied greatly. Right? I think in there you find an emphasis that I do think there has been a shift. I think it's sometimes it feels like a noble shift. I've heard in the land of Christianity, uh, almost you can find some folks who, who understand somehow that what's most noble for a Christian to do is to go after the lost. You know, make sure you're hearing what I'm not saying and what I am saying. Right? I'm not saying that, well, we don't need to be worried about that. Oh, no, no, no. We need to be very worried about that. Go is part of the Great Commission. Having an impact in the world is part of the Great Commission. It is not the only part of the Great Commission. There are some who... They sound this way. I mean, just i got to be honest, through the years, it, you know, they're, they're sort of the, uh, the Christian who looks like he's dressed for a safari spiritually. You know, he's got a safari hat on and a big gun. 
and he's serious about his walk with God. And he can't figure out why you don't have the burden he does for the lost. Now, what's apparently missing from him is his burden for the church and his burden for you. And he actually almost frowns upon that. He almost acts, acts like, you know, you're, you're a little bit too ingrown and self-focused. If you really love God and if you were really serious about God, you'd be concerned about the people who are not in this building today. Amen. Yes, you would. But if you're very concerned about the people who are in here today, you should not feel, feel uh, faulted by that. Because as you're going to see today, I believe it's accurate to say that the passion of God is more here than it is anywhere else. His love for you, his people, is outrageous in the Bible. It's not as though God really loves the lost and, you know, then he's got us with all of our issues. And he kind of, yeah, of course, of course he loves us. But God really loves the lost. And so when we pray, we pray for the lost. Like we don't pray for the church. Go to a prayer meeting. You hear this desperation for those who don't know Christ. But you don't necessarily hear that when we pray for the body of Christ. I think we're upside down. I think we don't sound like the New Testament when we do that. Some churches have created an entire style of presentation that all meetings are about the lost. It's like you come in, you know, whatever you want to call the movement, and it's eager to, to reach into the world of the lost. But do you understand, there's a principle here that when the church is thriving and healthy and functioning, it is declaring the gospel through its life. When the church is divisive and broken and malfunctioning and all the words we had on reconciliation here this morning. When the church is not that, but we try to go outside and proclaim a gospel message that doesn't have any reverberation in here. It's like you might as well unplug the microphone and we just... You know, somebody plug the mic in. Let the life of the church be so loud that people want to find out what is the deal with the hope in you people. Give me an answer for that. Listen, sometimes there's so much junk in the body of Christ. No one wants to hear the answer. They got as many issues in their own life as, as we got going on in here. Why? Why would they want to hear what we have to say? I've I met folks through the years who, who, who have this amazing burden for conversion but yet they don't have any burden for the church. Right? Do you understand? It's almost like, you know, well, you know, burden for the church, that's for, that's for selfish, uninformed people. I, I don't believe so. I'm gonna, hopefully after today you won't believe so either. Look at the verses like this, Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. You know, not, you know, if you get around to it, by the way, hey, the primary target's over here. No, especially those who are of the household of faith. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you showed for his sake in serving the saints as you still do. All right, this passage in 1 Peter chapter 2, that little phrase that's in there, a people for his own possession. It's a hard phrase to translate. 
Right, the Amplified Bible pulls out a couple of words when it says God's own purchased special people. It's, there's this concept of specialness in this people group that God is identifying here. Albert Barnes says there seems to be here an allusion to Exodus 19.5 where it says, Ye shall be a peculiar treasure with me above all people. Right? God so loved and God loves but God treasures peculiarly his own. Give me this thought. They are the people of his acquisition, choice, care, and delight. Right? Turn in Zephaniah just for a moment. If you can find the end of the Old Testament, turn left. Go through Malachi, Zechariah, Haggai. And you will find Zephaniah. Zephaniah chapter 3 is an amazing verse, verse 14. It says this, Zephaniah 3 verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. Right? Remember Matthew 28? I am with you always to the end of the age. Right? This, is, this is foreseeing the day that we get to live in. On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem. Now, remember who Jerusalem and Israel, these, these are God's people, right? This is who the, the reference is going, and it's written towards God's people. On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let, your hands, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. Now, listen, can you just hear this as it builds up? It's like God is in your midst and he's up to something. Be ready to be excited and to have faith because God is in your midst and he wants to do something in our midst. He's off the leash. He's leaning forward. He is eager. Right? So anticipate. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. All right, that's where, that's where Peter gets his behavior on the front row. He's being godly. Now, now listen, what we never transfer, not never, seldom transfer is the idea that anybody but us is singing. We do the singing. God does the being God. <laughs> we do the shouting. God sits on his throne. He's very austere. This is not an austere verse. This is a wild verse. It's kind of got some awkward language actually in it. I had to write some of it out for you there. The root meaning for exalt over you is to circle around from which such ideas as to circle in joy are readily derived. The root meaning is more applicable to, to vigorous, enthusiastic expressions of joy. Right? Some translations have this word meaning God is whirling about. 
dancing over. You know, I, I have no idea what this looks like, right? But I, I know for some of us, the idea of how God feels towards us as his people is, is borderline tolerant. Um, sure, he, he put the gun down, but it's still within eyesight, you know. <laughs> and he's probably reconsidering whether he should use it. I mean, and so we have this God who's, you know, he's just so fed up with all the mess in our lives. So I don't know what that looks like. It kind of looks like what I'm doing right now. Yeah, you're going to make it to the end. See you there. <laughs> you seen the latest clown act over here? You know, I mean, I don't have in my mind a God who, I still have a bum knee here. Let's see if I can do this. Go don't it, do it. it. <laughs> my wife has no faith, no faith for me to do this. <laughs> First word out of my mouth is don't, don't do it. <laughs> I'll try it on the right leg. Can you have a vision for God who is, he's, okay, he's looking at his church. He's looking at you as part of his church as those that he went out and claimed and brought into this place. And in this place, you got a God going. <laughs> I mean, God is dancing with joy. And I'm sure God dances better than that, and he definitely doesn't have a bad knee. But That's what this verse says God's posture is like when he's in the midst of us. A delight over his people, a joy over them, an affection toward them. Uh, listen, I'm, I'm going to take a moment with this thought. I'm tempted to run through it, but I'm not. Albert Barnes says this in his commentary on this verse. He says, love, joy, peace in man are shadows of that which is in God, by whom they are created in man. Only in God, they exist undivided, uncreated, I might add, untainted, undiluted, undiminished. So, you know, hey, the best dance I can do, I don't think it begins to touch the joy of God, the love of God, the affection of God. You know, I think there's some dynamics that go on inside the human heart that most of us, we feel the effect of them better than we understand them. Right? If I, if I throw out the thought... All of us want to be loved. There is an inherent desire, craving inside of us to be loved. But I don't think that's all that we're after. I think we're after dimensions of that love that sound like some of this. I think we're after somebody rejoicing over us. And I think sometimes we take the love of God and we turn it into this holy tolerance word. You know, it's like God loves us, but he sure doesn't like us. Um, I don't know, for some reason that love doesn't feel the same now, now that I've done that. You know, it's unconditional. God makes a decision to love us. Now, you know, there's truth in all those things. But we might be sort of rescuing God from being all that he is to us as well. God does love us, and he brings that love to us based in his mercy. But you know what it feels like when somebody doesn't just sort of love you because, well, I don't know, they're... They're like related to you. They have to. But instead they take interest in you. And they rejoice over you. 
They look at something that's happened in your life. They look at who you are. And they, they just greet you with this sense of you bring joy to me. And they brag on you and they, they call somebody over. They say, listen, did you, hear, did you hear the good news? Tell them. Tell them. Tell them what happened. And just the fact that you are overjoyed about their event, you receive that a certain way, don't you? You know, here's the challenge. Our hearts long for that, but I think Albert Barnes is right. It only exists in shadow form when we get it from each other. We get a shadow form of love for each other. We get a shadow form of joy, a shadow form of rejoicing over. The undiminished, pure essence of what our hearts long for is in God. To have a God who rejoices over us, who takes joy in us, who celebrates in our presence. Listen, what a mistake is made. What regret, what frustration, what disappointment awaits those who live in the shadows of these things. You know what I mean by that? It's like when you live your whole life trying to get your wife or your husband or the people that are significant to you to rejoice over you, to take joy in you, to love you for you. And when that doesn't happen, see, we live in the shadows of it. What you get from one another is pieces of what God has, broken dynamics of what God has, conditional. I'll only pay attention to you certain ways. I won't pay attention to others. See, there's a perfection in God. Our hearts long for what God can give us in that category. But what help we would have in our relationships if we could get free from trying to extract from the shadows these things and get it from God. And then be to one another who we're called to be. And this, that's big on being the people of God. Barnes goes on and says, Hence God speaks after the manner of men, of that which truly is in God. God joyeth with an uncreated joy over the works of his hands or the objects of his love, as man joyeth over the object of his love. So Isaiah says, As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride so shall thy God rejoice over thee. Listen, God's borrowing an image, but can you let God borrow it and perfect it? When a bridegroom finds a bride, it's a little, little moment of happiness there, Sid. You were, a little, you, you were a little unplugged a little while ago when we were announcing, whoo, found my wife. All right, now that's tainted fallen. Can you imagine what God is like over his bride? When he doesn't have to filter through all the brokenness and, you know, the lack and the insights we don't have. And he loves us that way. The soul, until it hath found God, is evermore seeking some love to fill it and can find none since the love of God alone can content it. Listen, if we get this, what a huge difference it would make. In being the people of God. See, we are a peculiar people. We're a people called in and gathered in so that God can be in our midst and he can dance around us and celebrate us being his people and belonging to him and being the objects of his care. There's something inside of us that's looking for that. It's shopping everywhere for it. I've always loved this quote from Blaise Pascal, the great 
16th century. He's a mathematician, scientist. We're still benefiting from the way this man's brain worked. He said this, there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person. And it can never be filled by any created thing. It can only be filled by God, made known through Jesus Christ. Listen, you know, most of us here today are not not necessarily being introduced to aspects of Christianity. We're familiar with the person of Jesus Christ. He came to earth and and he lived a life. And and at the end of his life, he was crucified and he he died and was buried and he he rose again on the third day. That's the basic elements of the gospel. So we've heard that story, but, but why? Why does any of that take place? Why do we even have a gospel story? Well, because Isaiah said, your sins have made a separation between you and your God. Sin separates us from God. See, the very thing that our hearts long for is the very thing that we're separated from by sin. And the only way back is through the person and work of Christ. What he did in coming to earth, being a perfect man, going to the cross and shedding his blood so that every one of our sins could be forgiven and the punishment removed and the barrier removed. Sin is a barrier between us and a holy God. And what our hearts are desperate for is him. But without Christ, we have no access to him. So Christ comes, removes the barrier, overcomes death through his resurrection life and now offers us to be reconciled to God. Can you, let me say it this way, to come home. See, that's why this is such a special place. This is home. This is what your soul has always wanted to be, belonging to God, being reconciled to him. I think I wrote this out in your outline. God had something in mind for his people to receive and experience when he sought them and brought them into his household. God had something in mind. Let me go through a couple of quick elements here. Two words you find throughout the scripture describing this people is household language and family language. Right? This needs to describe how we are in the body of Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. All right, so we're using house language here. 1 Timothy 3, verse 14. I hope to come to you soon. But I'm writing these things so that you, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. How one ought to behave in the household of God. Now listen, that's a little different than saying this is how you ought to behave in church. If I say that, don't you have a totally different image in your head? Don't run. Don't trip the older ladies. Uh, Don't talk real loud. Right, that's how you behave in church. Don't play on the piano after service. What else should I cover, Matt? Um, <laughs> but if I say Peter, uh, Paul was writing these things so that you'd know how to behave in the household, in the family. Right, he's not talking about where you park your car here. He's talking about relational dynamics within the household of God. Hebrews 3, verse 6. But Christ is faithful over God's house. As a son, and we are his house. Right? This needs to feel like a home, this environment here. Family is all over Scripture. First Peter 1 and verse 22, and then again in chapter 3, verse 8. 
mentions brotherly love. The kind of love that we're to have amongst the people of God is a brotherly, a family-type love. Romans 12.10, love one another with brotherly affection. Hebrews 13.1, let brotherly love continue. So you, you and I need to, to be able to point to the body of Christ and say, this is where my brothers are. My sisters are. This is family for me. Everyone in the body of Christ should be growing in that and be able to experience it. Now let, me, let me fix this idea of brotherly love because it sounds cool. You like to use the term brother. You can meet somebody you never know. Hey, bro, what's up? Um, it's a misuse of the term. Okay. Here, I'm going to just run through these passages quickly. 1 John chapter 3. Listen to this brother language. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. Right, I'm going back a few weeks ago to our inclusive and exclusive language in the Scriptures. That we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us. Do you see two groups in that sentence? There's us and there's the world. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. A little bit later in chapter 3, John says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Please notice the distinction. John is not referring to the world as a brother. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Who are the brothers? They're the members of the body of Christ. This is not the brotherhood of man that we're talking about here. This is the brotherhood of the family of God that, that is being used here. All right, let's look at one passage and then I'm going to try and move to close here. Ephesians chapter 2. If I allow the, the Bible to be its own commentary here, Paul is going to give us maybe the best insights on 1 Peter chapter 2. So I'm going to quote a bunch of other commentators, but let's, let's just quote the Apostle Paul commentating on the same concept that Peter is bringing up in 1 Peter 2. Look in Ephesians 2 verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, just made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. There's a lot of hostility in this group. There's racial tensions, cultural background differences that made the first century church have to battle with some issues that are not so unique. They still travel into our settings today. But what Paul's highlighting is something that we have in common 
is what brings us into unity together. No matter where you come from, no matter what your background is, no matter what you believed before you came, no matter what you practiced before being a believer, no matter what color you are, there's something we have in common. He says, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, and so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So no matter where you came from, no matter what your last name is, when you came to Christ, you found out that you and I have the same Father. Now, in the natural, if you discovered that, what would that do to you? It would affect the way you feel about that other person if you, if you knew, I didn't know my Father was your Father. You understand, in the Spirit, my Father is your Father. And we're family. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Listen, all of us are in this passage. At some point, the gospel comes and finds us, and we are far removed from the people of God. And yet God found us and made us his peculiar people, his family, his household. We are no longer strangers and aliens. Do you feel that way? We should look towards the back. Do you feel like you're not a stranger here? Church, church can be a tough thing to pull off. Do you feel like a family member? Do you feel connected? Do you feel like you belong? I mean, life is, life is a lonely experience in a lot of ways. And for some people living in the midst of a crowd, it still feels very lonely. Very sad that that can be the environment in the church. That people can still be in the church but not experiencing this. Do you understand? God was aiming at you to bring you in to be his special people so that he could be in the midst of us as a father amongst his family and we would belong to him and to one another. You should feel like you belong in the church. You should no longer feel like a stranger and an alien. You know, so interesting in the providence of God. I got an email yesterday from someone who came into this church, and I think this is worthy of commending you on because one of the things that we hear from a lot of folks is how welcomed they are, how cared for they are, how amazed they were at the friendliness and the care of the church. And this person um, sends an email, actually sent the email to a number of folks. I didn't get a chance to ask her whether I could read it, so I'm not going to tell you who she is, but she sent it to a bunch of 
people, so it's, it's public already. She came to this church not knowing anyone. That's hard. I don't know if you guys have ever church shopped. I've, I haven't had to do that. Well, actually, I did a little bit, but it's hard to find your way into feeling like you belong in the family. It's a hard thing to do. But listen to, listen to this email. She says, I want to thank you all for being there. New Orleans is the last place I would have looked to move to, and yet after being here and being so lovingly brought into your families and treated as family, all I can say is that I am thankful for my time here and grateful to so many of you for being friends and family I never really ever had before here. You are and always will be my family, and I'm thankful for you all. You know, I didn't send this person an email and say, can you use the word family as much as possible? (laughs) I'm sad to leave you all. And as the tears flow as I write this, just know one day when you hear Judy Gambino screams in the lobby one Sunday, know it's because she saw us walk through the doors. Poor Judy, she just gets picked on every week, doesn't she? You all touched my life, and God used you all to show me his face and his heart in all you said and did from the hugs to corrective words spoken in truth and love. My one prayer is that I infect my new church with the same love and passion you have for the cross and our Savior you showed me as you all walked it out. God bless you all, and take care. Listen, that would be the experience of many many people. I mean, I can't go too many days without hearing of some extraordinary care. I mean, just conversational, just talking with Bryant yesterday, and, and he's, he's not, he's just being conversational, and just happens to bring up something that happened in somebody else's life, and next thing you know, I'm, I'm just hearing about how many people were involved in helping this person, and he didn't know he was feeding me something that I wanted to say today. If you just talk to somebody in a covenant group, it's just common language to hear how this person was helped. This group stepped in. That need was met. They helped build this. They helped move this. They got involved in caring for the family. So in some ways, I am preaching to the choir. But if there's three to 400 people here who we're guessing may still be beyond the reach of some of that, and there's probably more who just don't necessarily feel like they're all that connected, then I don't want us to sit back and pat ourselves on the back and think work is done. God is going to continue to bring people into our midst. They're part of the family, right? How tragic for someone to be part of the family but not feel like they're part of the family. Can you imagine? Right? Go into your own home. You and your husband and wives are sitting around. Maybe extended family, children. And it's time to eat dinner. I'll call for dinner. Everybody comes in to sit at the dining room table. We're gathered around, and there's joy to be together. There's one person sitting in the den by themselves who doesn't come. And no one takes notice. You eat. You go on. Do your thing. Enjoy time together, but no one noticed. That person was left out just for whatever reason, maybe their own reasons. And then plans unfold for the evening, and there's excitement, and we're all going to run off and do something together. They get in the car, everybody loads up, except for one person 
who stays inside and doesn't come out, doesn't join in. That's all right. We're having such a great time. We buckle up, drive off, and don't notice. Now, that would be tragic, wouldn't it? I mean, do we recognize to some degree that that happens within churches? It's just a reality. It's not one we want to let pass by. Alexander Strauch says, a cold, unwelcoming church contradicts the gospel message. Yet unfriendliness stands, stands out as a frequent criticism of local churches. It doesn't take people long to figure out there's a churchy love among Christians that ends at the back door of the sanctuary or in the parking lot. It is a superficial, Sunday morning-only kind of love that is unwilling to extend itself beyond the walls of the church building. I, you know, I, I don't see that a lot here, and I thank God for that. But it doesn't mean we don't have a lot of room that we could grow and improve. Here's one thing I, I want to suggest amongst a number of things. There are some wonderful networks of relationships that exist in the church. Covenant Group Ministry has kind of helped foster a lot of that. But, but realize this, that you can be coming in here on a Sunday morning and the foyer can be filled with people that you don't know. And you find the people, the eight or ten people that are in your world, that at some point you had none in your world. And then you had four, and then you had six and eight, and now, now you got a little group of folks and you belong. And you know you belong. And you're grateful that you belong. Can you just add one or two more to your group? You just look around and say, I'm not telling you to abandon your groups. I don't think you should do that. I just think you should add one or two more to them. Just adopt some folks in. You know, I can remember being a youth pastor and hear all these criticism of cliques. It's cliques. Yeah, cliques in the youth group. Well, it cliques everywhere. And you know what? I mean, I'm a, maybe I'm a little bit weird on this. I'm not against cliques. I'm against the exclusivity of cliques. People devoted to one another who pursue each other and enjoy being together. What, you want me to take that apart? <laughs> Why? Isn't that what makes family family? You want to be together. You look forward to being together. You pursue people. They matter to you. You're paying attention to their lives. You're up to date. You're rejoicing over them. And, you know, to let you off the hook a little bit here, Christian can't do that for all of you. I know you wanted him to, and I know you thought, knew this was coming, but you, he can't do that for all of you. He can't rejoice over all of you. He can't take interest in all of you. He can't possibly know all of you. So he's going to have to live in a clique. <laughs> all right, don't rejoice over that for Christian's sake. <laughs> but if he just let a little bit more in, in this group, let a little bit more in, a little more in. Like, well, you know, everybody gets adopted into a family when that happens. Right, that's what church needs to be, a place of belonging. Are you aware that there are people here today who don't feel like they belong? And the God of the universe went out and found them to bring them in so that he could be in the midst of them and, and dance around them, rejoicing over them. Because they're no longer strangers and aliens, they're part of the family. And we want to make sure we don't leave anyone out of that. All right, now for the sake of time, I'm, I'm going to hold off on touching on an issue of, of hospitality. 
Because I think hospitality lies at the heart of building relationships. Hospitality has to do with having a life that's open and has space in it for people to travel in and out of our homes and in and out of our lives. And so I know that's a challenge, and, and we'll get to that. But can we maybe just today, can we just stay where we are here? And, and let me just ask two things of all of us. I don't know if this is in your outline or not. Two things. One, can everyone here be affected by the fact that God made us a family? And in response to that, can you develop a lifestyle? And this is not going to go away because I think this is a 2011 thing for us. Can you develop a lifestyle where you intentionally, regularly reach out to people? That you, you don't just gravitate towards the people that are easy for you, the ones that you know rejoice over you and take interest in you and cause you to feel accepted. Can you walk in, right, this is how we reach the world from the foyer in our family room. Can you walk in every Sunday knowing that, that you have a divine opportunity for someone to belong here? You have the ability by the grace of God to rescue someone from that alienation that God reached out into the world and rescued them from. That's the gospel. You're no longer strangers and aliens. Oh, but I sure feel like it still. Oh, may it never be. May it be that we are the people who help people belong. So listen, if the church is dysfunctional relationally, I can stand up here and preach on evangelism all I want. I'm going to sound different than the Bible. Because the Bible speaks to the people of God about being the people of God. And the effect of us being the people of God is pushing into the world and having to explain the hope that's within us. Having to explain the peculiarness of how we love one another and walk with one another and cherish each other and make sure people belong. And then when you open your home, you can reach the world from your family room. You have no idea. When I, when I sit and listen to people's stories, but people like that, we got that email, of people who were taken in and loved and cared for by somebody in the body of Christ and what that person became because they, they didn't just hear some words, they were befriended. They were cared for. They were helped along. And they walked with others. Listen, open your home, and when you're here, open your life to people standing in the foyer. Intentionally reach out to people. Now, for some of you here, what you need to hear is intentionally be reachable. It's a tough thing to come into a church where you don't know anybody. But listen, watching people do that through the years, some people have handles on them. Some people walk up and make sure they stick their handle in your hand. <laughs> They're reachable. Some people are not. It's like they kind of drift and stay in the corners and don't say anything or connect but yet feel like I don't belong. Yeah, listen, you're not helping. I mean, there's some radical people in this room. People who came into the church didn't know hardly anybody here. Looking over here at you know the Allens. Didn't know anybody here. You know anybody now? <laughs> yeah. There's a bunch of people that are all laughing on because these these people know this couple. Because people reach to them, 
but they were reachable. You know, the basils. How long you guys been here? How long? Four years. Gosh, it feels like 40. Um, <laughs> you know, these, these guys are helping lead a small group. There's handles all over them. Listen, there's barriers to overcome. Fagin Rufus. I don't know if you noticed, but Fagin Rufus are a different color than me. <laughs> I mean, I'm pretty white, and Rufus, you're pretty black. I don't know if anybody's <laughs> told you that, but... This, how many of you guys know Fadgen Rufus? Can you check this out? <laughs> Listen, that is off the charts, man. And, and, and you know, I mean, if you've related any time to these guys, they are affectionate, caring, they take interest. I mean, they, they, they got handles all over them. But when they came into this church, all they knew was their daughter who was here. You did know your daughter, right? <laughs> Listen, I know there's barriers, but what God has done, can we honor what God has done? God has gone out into the world to find us so that he might bring us into a place that he calls a household and a family, brothers and sisters, affection towards each other so that in the midst he might dance around us with great joy. He's our father. Let's do this. In 2011, you're not going to hear just this today. You'll hear it again next week, and you're going to hear it a bunch. When you go into that foyer from now on, please don't go in the same way. When you get, get here early, not just to find the folks that you've already been connected with, but to go find somebody, I have no idea who that person is. I wonder if they, I wonder if they belong. I wonder if they feel like they belong. Listen, if you get creative, and some of you guys are amazing, God will give you ways to reach into these folks' lives. And, and, you know, if there's a bunch of you going off to lunch, hey, there's a bunch of us going to lunch. Would you like to join us? If they say no next week, grab their handle again. They may be a little shy. Maybe they don't think you really mean it. Maybe they just think, oh, that guy, man, yeah, he preached that message. Be nice to me because you have to. All right, maybe in a few weeks from now, they'll forget the message. Most of them do. Um, <laughs> Invite them over. We're having a bunch of people over for the game. What you doing? Why don't you come? There's a bunch of us getting together and going to the park on Saturday. Hey, we'd love to have you. Right? Just extend something into people's lives. And you don't have to do it for everybody in the church. But some people need you to do it for them. All right, let's stand up together. Lord, thank you for this word. A people for God's own possession. A house that you are building. Each one of us, stones in that house. Gathered together by you to experience heavenly family. Oh, Lord, may there be voices being heard through ears and hearts today that say, welcome home from wherever you've been, from whatever life has dealt you, from whatever your address has been, from whatever your last name is, from whatever color skin you are. Welcome home. 
Welcome to the family of God. Welcome to God being your father. Welcome to this gathering that the Lord anticipated this morning and took great joy in. Was looking forward to the family being together. He was looking forward to exulting over you and dancing with joy and gladness over those that he's brought in. Oh God, may there be in days ahead a pronounced effect on this church's ability to feel like a family. In Jesus' name, amen.